I'm Dirk Hartung. And my name is Lauritz Gerlach. And this is the Legal Tech Podcast Series, an originally series podcast production by Law Podcast Media. Our guest for this episode is Abbas Khan, solicitor in the UK, a former in-house lawyer and currently director of sales at eBrevia. Welcome, Abbas. Hello there. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Dirk and Larry. Thanks for having me on today. So our topic for today is artificial intelligence and legal, specifically contracts. But before we get into that, can you give us a little bit of your personal backstory on what brought you to the current stage of your career? Of course, sure thing. So yeah, just in terms of my current backstory, I wanted to go into the legal profession. I wanted to be a lawyer before my degree, uh, which then influenced my degree choice. And then whilst I was was working on that, I did a few bits of experience here and there and quite liked criminal law, which is what I went into uh, just for a bit after I graduated. Then I switched to commercial because there were the wider things. I wanted to get a wider grip on things too. And it was quite buzzing at the time also as well. And then I qualified as a sister and worked in financial services for quite a while. And now I have moved into legal tech. I'm very happy to talk about that in a bit more detail later on as well. But yeah, it's, it's just all quite sort of relative. And the thing is, like, it all kind of feeds into each other, which is quite fun as well. Cool. Can you tell us in a nutshell what your company, Ibrevia, is doing and why it is relevant to the practice of the law? Of course, yes, not a problem at all. So what eBrevia does is it's a software as a service platform that users use in order to help them speed up the review of contracts. So it's basically contract analytics. The tool is powered by a sophisticated artificial intelligence engine that was developed in conjunction with Columbia University in New York. So there's a very academically rigorous backing behind it. And what it does is it knows many different types of legal concepts and can help users find and track a lot of those. And the best thing is because the AI is quite strong and versatile, you can also teach it to find different things too. And many of our users uh, do that as well. So in a way, what a lot of companies do is they just use eBrevia to just find and track a lot of key things in different types of contracts. And then that applies to many different types of use cases. So all the things from transactional stuff to real estate, repapering, digitization, and many things in between. And why it's quite relevant for today is because again, just the artificial intelligence part, eBrevia does have very strong artificial intelligence for the industry that we're in. And as a result, it'll be interesting to explore a little bit about you know, AI, how people use it, and, you know, the main sort of benefits and drawbacks as well that we're finding at the moment too. So staying with your user base for a moment, are there specific industries that use it, specific maybe geographical, regional markets, and who within a company or a law firm is typically using your product? So it tends to be, actually, it's quite wide. So in terms of industries, so the product is actually used quite widely throughout many different types of companies and corporations and that kind of thing. It's used by, we've got many different pillars of businesses. The first is auditing companies, so you know, some of the big four and many others in between who have it for many different use cases, including advising clients on many things like tax or forensics or, or just other things to do with contracts and legal services too. And then, of course, law firms, which is a given large and small who then you know deal with contracts pretty much every day and types of things with them. So as a result, they're a large user base too. And then of course, anybody that needs to review contracts also. So a lot of legal teams and in-house legal functions across many different industries. So tech companies, banks, manufacturers, and lots and lots and lots of things in between. In terms of the people that tend to use it most, it's actually a bit of a mix there as well. You would expect that it would be lawyers and predominantly it is uh, of all kinds. You know, you've got sort of the partners who really like the output and the, the sort of data it can give them. And of course, associates or mid-level lawyers or legal counsel, that kind of thing, who need to actually use the product, you know, with a lot of their use cases. And then many, many other sort of, sort of even people before qualification too, who do a lot of large 
scale use of the product as well, depending on the project. So on the legal side of things, there's that side of things. But then also it gets a lot wider too. So you have like a lot of procurement professionals and obligation management staff and also legal operations people or just operations people in general, sometimes even people who are in IT and just in IT departments who just are looking for efficiencies and ways to speed things up and ways to track certain obligations and maybe SLAs or service levels, service credits, that kind of thing. So it is really, really wide in terms of application. And that's just maybe a a testament to the strength of the AI. You can use it in many different ways. But then, of course, in terms of geographic region, finally as well, again, quite wide. I think that seems to be my keyword for today. You have to think of some other vocabulary. But yeah, so we sort of have bases all around the world, from the US to EMEA and then to Asia Pacific too. And the tool does work in many, many different languages and many different types of scripts as well. So not just Latin script, but Cyrillic and many other non-Latin script too. So Russian, Chinese, Korean, that kind of thing. So as a result, it is quite used widely all around the world too. It's the same kind of AI, just different languages, and it seems to perform quite well. So again, a bit of a mix really and quite wide. No problem. Let me help narrowing that down. I was asking it from a business and markets analytics perspective, because I was curious on whether you can tell that particular industries or regions are in a different stage in terms of maturity. So are there typical clients that use it in a more advanced way? Or would you say that, I don't know, the EMEA region is more active in using it than, say, Asia or the other way around? That's what I originally intended to know, to hear a bit about how you as one of the main providers in the market, how you view the world. Sure, sure. Got it. In that case, apologies for that long tirade. But yeah, just in that case, it depends a little bit because so it depends if we look at the EMEA region, for example, in most regions, you can break them down into the kind of stuff that's about in markets like the UK and in Germany, for example, it is quite what you might say a more sort of developed and mature market. A lot of companies do find that they will need a tool like this, they might have one already. And there's lots of really fast developments as well in technology with lots of sort of new players and different capabilities. And it's really cool from that perspective to kind of see the kinds of things that people want and add them into the product as well. And then from other sides of things, sometimes you find that uh, in other areas, it's still kind of developing a little bit. It's just sort of catching up. It's sort of starting out and in the mid-level, so places like Spain or, or France or things like that, where a lot of, you know, sometimes the saying can be something like, we know this technology is good, but we don't want to be the first to adopt it. We want to just see somebody else do it first. And that can be an interesting thing to deal with sometimes too, and, and has its advantages and disadvantages. And then, of course, wider in, in other sides of things, it, it's the same story in other regions too, such as the Asia Pacific region too. Like in markets like Japan, you've got a lot of different providers, a lot of different types of solutions. Some companies do have well, quite a bit of stuff and expect a lot from the marketplace. Others, not not so much. And, and then it just sort of depends. And then sometimes you also have a lot of large law firms who actually outsource a lot of their legal tech functions to across the world. So they've got large bases in Singapore or sometimes even the Philippines. So, you know, a lot of the markets there can be quite mature as well. So I wonder if that adds the kind of flavor that you might have been looking for, if that helps to know. Looking at your product that you sell, how much of that is actually a product and how much is a service? So is it just a software that you give to people and then tell them they're on their own? Or is it also that you sell services in which you help people apply the product? What's your position on that? Yeah, sure. So in terms of the actual product itself, it is more just we supply software as a service. So it is the product and users predominantly just use it. We don't tend to provide many services with it or 
any, we, we sort of, as part of the, the sort of offering, we can just offer like strategic advice and things like that and training and, and that kind of thing too. But we've developed it in such a way that it's really easy just to open it up and apply it to a lot of documents and, and just, you know, individually tailor it to your use case and many other things in between. So, so as a result, it is just really the product that we, that we offer more than anything else. And, and yet it does sort of help us see things as a bar- barometer as to, you know, how simple the product is to use by way of, you know, can people just pick it up and use it? And when we see that quite a lot, then yeah, we know it, it's going well. But yeah, it's mainly just the product itself instead of services. So if I can chime in there, something you said earlier makes me think, and where you said that your customers use it to serve their clients. So there's really not only the person that you are selling to, but they're using it to integrate it into their product services bundles, so to speak. And I'm wondering, is that what you have in mind when you say it works out of the box, but it typically requires a service provider to fit it for an end user? Or is that just someone who had a smart idea of using your product in a different way than you originally intended? Sure, sure. So we kind of see both. We see people who use it as part of their offering services for other sorts of clients and then for their own clients. And then we see people who use it for themselves. So, you know, just the ones who use it for themselves are mainly just corporations with in-house teams because they need to manage some data. They need some contract analytics as to what's actually inside a lot of the stuff that they've signed up to. So it doesn't really go kind of past them. But for the ones who do use it as for to service their own clients, it's again, quite interesting because it can sometimes show how industries are changing. So for a lot of law firms, for example, they'll use it. And it's not really something that, you know, maybe the end client might know about it. Maybe they might not even really care that much. It just means that they can, the law firm themselves or the service provider can do the actual task a lot quicker, which is really, really good. You know, give you a bit of a slight backstory if it helps to know. When I was practicing before, if I was doing like a transaction, just when I was practicing as a lawyer in in an M&A context, let's say if there's like an acquisition, you're going to do an acquisition, you've got to read all the contracts, see if there's, you know, a problem or something you need to flag to the buyer. And what used to happen was, you know, a lot of companies, like if we think of Amazon, they've got huge amounts of contracts and doing the due diligence on everything would just be like impossible. So people just choose like material contracts to try and take less time as to what you're looking at. So sometimes it'd be narrowed down to a couple of hundred or something like that. And then what I'd do is I would read through the documents, find the problems and try and just, you know, flag that up. But the best part about is sort of tools like Ebrevio is that, you know, you just put all the contracts in, it'll tell you all kinds of things you need to know, the risks, the liabilities, the indemnities, that kind of thing. And it just makes that whole process a lot quicker. So a lot of law firms or service providers find they can, you know, the profitability on the projects goes up quite a lot because you're spending less time doing the due diligence. And a lot of clients want to pay a fixed fee. So that's why it works for them. But then also they can then start to offer a lot more of a comprehensive due diligence, you know, instead of just choosing 200 material contracts, they can say, you know, give us the lot because we've got an AI that can review them. And so just, you know, it helps make things a bit more comprehensive and make things a bit more more kind of profitable as well. So from that perspective, it's just kind of them using it in a clever way to further their own sort of objective, if that helps to know. So the end users who use it for themselves too, sometimes like corporations in-house, you know, they just pick it up and put stuff in and get the stuff they want out. But yeah, these sort of service providers, if you will, it just helps as part of their own business model to kind of carve out a bit more profit or do more with less or do things a bit quicker or more thoroughly, that kind of thing. I'd like to go into a little more detail on the technology. When you speak of artificial intelligence, what exactly do you mean? I mean, the term, there are people who have a natural understanding of what AI is, but the term is used a little differently in every industry. I'd like you to give some typical use cases of the machine learning tools you deploy in your products and what they are. 
Of course, yes, not a problem at all. And AI is, of course, a really wide kind of concept. And there's many different things about it in the press and how we all think of it too. So I'm very happy to get a bit more specific. Actually, I kind of going on a bit off topic here. So a friend of mine actually read a book called I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And it's about some kind of AI controlled society that, that's really, really nuts and some post-apocalyptic AI. And I've got no idea what the book is about apart from that. And, you know, after he read it, he couldn't sleep for weeks. <laughs> so I'm really excited to go and see like what kind of stuff that is. And then after reading it, see, you know, how close are we <laughs> in terms of some of the current technology that we have around? But in terms of, yeah, going into the specifics a bit more, what does it actually do and how do people actually use it? So eBrevia is a combination of machine learning and natural language processing technology in the sense that how it kind of works is that it'll sort of, you would give it examples of things. So you would give it like an example of maybe let's say something you're looking for. And if I'm doing a transaction, I'm going to want to advise my clients as bad things that they want to be careful of in contracts. And one example could be an indemnity. If something goes wrong, that client has to pay for that. That's the indemnity clause. So basically how it works is that you would give, even though it already comes pre-trained, it can find that stuff anyway. But the way the technology works is that you would give eBrevio an example of an indemnity clause, and then you would give it a few more. And then it would just sort of look at the words and the language in that clause. And kind of from that, just calculate its own kind of algorithms as to, you know, what would be a good indemnity clause? What's the kind of thing that you're trying to look for based on the examples you've given it. And then from there, it'll also look at a lot of the other stuff. So, you know, the stuff that you did not select, the stuff that you potentially don't want as well. And then from there, just continue to, to strengthen its rules as to see, you know, what are the kinds of things that you you're looking for and the kinds of things that you don't. And so the advantage of doing that is that it isn't one of those systems where you put rules in beforehand. So you say, oh, if it says this, you do that. If it looks like this, you do that. Because they can be quite sort of structurally inflexible. If it finds something new, it'll probably not be able to handle it or, or find the kinds of stuff that you want. But by doing things this way, by just giving examples, having it read them and sort of try and make an understanding as to what you're looking for, the best part about that is it's quite future-proof. So when it comes across stuff that it hasn't seen before, it still will be able to figure out what an indemnity is and pick it out for you. So that's it at a very kind of small level. On a very large level, of course, it knows hundreds of different concepts out of the box and it can just extract them all for you for many different types of use cases. And then, of course, from there as well, you can also you know, because we've made the technology quite user-friendly, you can actually point eBrevia to different things that you want it to find that might be really specific for your own industries. It can learn those too. So I'd be happy to talk about a few of the specific use cases now as well. But before I just delve into that, did you have any points or questions that you might want to, to, to clarify? No, that's great. I just wanted to have a quick follow-up, but that's that should be relatively short. I was wondering, natural language processing and generally this kind of machine learning takes a lot of training data and it takes a lot of training for it to get to a precision and accuracy level that is a good user experience. And so my question would be, does the software keep learning at the client or do you incorporate any of what the client does into the central model or do you independently keep training the model with other data? Sure. Yeah, that's a really important point. So I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like a lot of machine learning platforms, they, they need machine learning in general. And you know, it does need a lot of examples to learn and understand things. The way that eBrevia has been created and, and the sort of technology that we have used is that the AI is really, really strong. So typically users find that they need a lot less examples compared to a lot of other platforms. So you don't have to give eBrevia hundreds of examples or anything like that. It can get going with as few as six and do like a pretty good job with stuff that's maybe like 10 or 15 examples. And if something's a little bit more difficult, maybe giving it 20 is a good shout too. But yeah, in terms of um, 
client data and things like that. So we are quite strict with that. That's really important to us as a company in the sense that we've trained the tool to do stuff ourselves on publicly available documents and and documents that we have. And clients can then use that data and put out all the stuff that they need to. If the clients want to train it to find their own different types of things, they can. And they can give it more examples and it'll get smarter and smarter on the examples they give it, but only in their instance. It never moves back to us. We don't even see a lot of the stuff that clients train. We don't use the data they put in in any way. It just, eBrevia uses it, like, but only in their own instance. It never moves to any central kind of thing. And then we just make sure our models remain quite sharp by just continuing to trade them ourselves with different things that we find and, and different documents that we get as well. So from that perspective, our clients get a bit of the best of both worlds. They get super stuff, uh, super accurate stuff from us. And then they can train it on their own things too and get it really smart to their own specific documents. But then they get the huge benefit and security of the fact that nothing is going past their instance. It doesn't go back to us or go into any central kind of zone and use the sort of communal thing for, for everybody to benefit from. So they like that because it just sort of means that their, their stuff stays separate as theirs. You put a lot, a lot of emphasis on that. And I, as a researcher, I can't help but think that is not the best possible situation because you have people possibly training these models and then that never goes to the central model again. So we're missing out on huge opportunities of actually improving the model. But you are doing that for a reason. So I wonder, is that an industry need? Is that something that makes it harder to sell to clients if you ask for their cooperation in training the models? Is that a confidentiality issue? Because from a purely technical perspective, the more data we have, the better the models become. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. The more data that they can you know, be fed into a system, the absolute best it can become. So from that technical perspective, I do agree. But yeah, from an industry perspective, it's like, in a way, it's a bit like a little bit of good practice in the sense that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of organizations, their contracts are really, really commercially sensitive. And for a lot of service providers as well, a lot of their client contracts, are even more commercially sensitive because they're actually trusting the service provider too. So, you know, if you add another layer onto that, it makes things even more complicated also too. So from that perspective, it's a lot more comforting for a lot of clients. And it's kind of the environment that we have to operate in. If we were, and sometimes we do partner up with clients too, who do want to share data, they're very, very welcome to do it. We often partner up when that happens. But yeah, for, for the most part of it, it just helps, you know, in terms of just doing business, a lot of clients are not prepared to share their details, we can understand why. And so from that perspective, that's the main reason why we don't tend to make it a standard that we pull out all the data or, or try and convince clients to do that. We don't really do that because it just makes things a lot easier and makes it easier for them to use the the tool as well. And at the end of the day, (laughs) the departments that we're usually working with who are using eBrevia, you know, they're not like sales or operate, well, sometimes they're operations too, which is good, but they are usually like sort of for the majority lawyers or professionals who kind of by training are geared to be quite risk averse. (laughs) So just sort of telling them that, oh, you know, oh, we're going to use all your data or something like that too. It, It can make it like a massive red flag and a huge stop. So that's why yeah, we prefer to keep it separate. And the clients really, really, really appreciate that too. Yeah, I get that. I mean, in an ideal world, you would be able to learn from the work, the annotations that your clients perform, and you would do so without necessarily transmitting sensitive information. That is just for all the folks out there why things like differential privacy and federated learning are so popular in the technical space, because they are trying to provide a solution to precisely the problem that we've been talking about. But that is currently more of a research frontier and not yet in the commercial market. So there's great things ahead of us. But I want to quickly 
turn back to a couple of specific use cases that you mentioned, Abbas, but how clients are actually using your software. And I think after some technical talk, it might make sense for our audience to just get an idea of what they can actually do with it in a business context. Yeah, totally, totally. Very much so. So yeah, I think just to give a few really, really quick use cases, again, the sort of acquisitional or transactional one is a big one. So for example, you know, somebody's going to buy a company, so they need to know what are all the problems of that company so they can either adjust the price or you know, revise the offer or whatever it might be. And so what's going to happen is they're going to need somebody to go through all of the the main contracts or as many contracts as possible that, that company has and find, you know, key data. So things like change of control, because if you're going to, let's say you're Mercedes and it finally happened, you're going to buy BMW. You've got like a massive contract with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. You know, whenever you go on holiday, they're all BMWs. Of course, you want that contract because it's a lot of money. And it's no good that that contract that BMW has that you're going to buy because you want all the money from that contract has a change of control provision where basically it says, if somebody gets bought by somebody else, we get to terminate. So, you know, just finding stuff like that or finding liabilities or indemnities is a real key kind of thing. And it's all buried in different types of contract. So a lot of people use the system to just, you know, you put the contract in, you tell it all the different things that you want, show me the change of control, the indemnities, any minimum purchase requirements, that kind of thing. And then it'll just pluck all that kind of stuff out for you. So it just saves a lot of the huge reading, finding time. And also the best thing is too, you know, just from experience, I mean, you know, lawyers, you know, we all say that we never make mistakes. But when it's like, you know, 3am and you're, you know, on a transaction for the, you know, it's now a month running, you might get a little tired. So the best thing about AI based tool is that, you know, it's just going to keep plucking stuff out. And as well, you know, it'll still find things if, if the same keywords aren't used. So just, you know, speeding up that process is a key use case. Another thing is that happens a lot too is a large sort of repapering project. So it's basically, there are many different industries like banking or software, or whatever, and they're happily ticking along, you know, doing business each day. And then, oh dear, a brand new regulation comes into force and suddenly everything has to change. So those are things like for the banking sector, the LIBOR use case. And that's basically something where you might be familiar with it, the LIBOR basically means the London interbank offered rate. And what that was, you know, the banks, you know, they'd lend you know money to yourself or to me, or if we had large corporations, they'd lend money to us so we can make our acquisitions or we can buy equipment, but they would break up those loans and lend to each other internally. And the rate that they would use would be that London interbank offered rate. And for years, this rate was a trusted staple of the financial system, I think for about just over 30 years or maybe a bit more. And so everybody like used the LIBOR interest rate. I'll lend you X amount of money, like two points ahead of LIBOR, whatever it might be, blah, blah, blah. But then as, as you may recall in, in sort of like the, I think it was around maybe 2010, maybe a bit more, a bit after, the rigging scandal came out where actually that rate was, it turned out not very trustworthy at all. And a few people went to court and blah, blah, blah. But the fallout from that was that in about sort of 2019, actually what happened was a lot of regulators, including the FCA, the financial regulator of the United Kingdom, said that, you know, in X amount of years time, there must be no LIBOR rate in any contracts. So what a lot of banks suddenly had were they had 30 years worth of, of loans. I think it amassed to about $350 trillion worth of loans in the financial system that, you know, were run on the LIBOR rate. And suddenly all of this had to change as well as the difficulties of finding out, you know, what should we use now then? There was the legacy issue. So we've got lots and lots of loan contracts. They all have this rate. Well, maybe they don't. We don't actually know. And so that's why eBrevi was super useful because, you know, you could just be a large bank or advising a large bank and you could just take all their loan agreements, put it into eBrevi and say, show me 
you know, is the libel right in there? Is there any fallback language? So, you know, if it doesn't apply anymore, what is, is there a provision that kicks in? Oh, there is, good, so we don't have to worry about that one then. So just to speed up that process for that sort of global reshuffle, uh, you know, again, Ebrevi was used quite widely there. And then, of course, GDPR was an, another big one too as well. So, you know, the GDPR deadline came in, I think it was a few years ago. And, you know, even at the insurance company I worked at, there was like a massive scramble <laughs> to find like, oh no, we need to see like, wh- what have we agreed in terms of data with with everybody that we work with, you know, and tools like Ebrevi really helped there. And then, of course, now we've got the, the Schrems 2 decision from the EU. Can you host data? Can you move it from the EU to the US? That kind of thing. And clients who are tech companies are just using Ebrevi to find, you know, look inside their contracts now that there's been a regulatory change. Can they share data with the US? Can they not? What's that going to mean? And just pluck all that data out. And it's really useful because it's not just one or two contracts that we're talking about in all of these use cases. It's like, hundreds of thousands, that kind of thing. So having someone do it manually just would take so long and be so expensive. Whereas by using a tool, it just helps a lot more. And then finally, you've got like more sort of slightly different use cases. So then of course, a lot of people use it for real estate projects and asset management and, and things like that. Because again, you know, there's just loads of contracts, leases, things like that. You know, you can quickly, you know, if a big asset like a shopping mall is being sold and there are 30 units, you know, they've all got different leases. You could just quite easily find, you know, what are the obligations? everybody has? Can you do other any restrictions? Can you do some building work? Can you sell it to XYZ? That kind of thing. So from there, it really helps. And then a lot of corporations as well. So let's say if there is a large, like maybe car company or airline or tech company or whatever, or bank, usually, you know, they will have a lot of different things they need to track in their contracts if they signed up to good stuff or bad stuff or in terms of performing stuff? Do they have to commit to certain deliverables within 90 days? What are those deliverables? That kind of thing. And it's really easy just to you know put everything into Ebrevia, all your historic documents, and, and then manage a lot of that data and, and extract a lot of stuff out of it. So there are a few quick use cases if that helps to know. And, and then there are many sort of fun things in terms of implementing the tool and stuff like that as well. And I can talk about that a bit later on too as well. But, but yeah, those are a few use cases if, if that helps to know. Absolutely. The examples you mentioned strike me in terms, sometimes as classification tasks, right? You have this huge amount of contracts and you have to, or clauses, and you have to find out whether a clause is something that you're looking for or not. I can see how that makes life much easier, but it's not so much about replacing lawyers as we may have read in the news, right? What percentage of young lawyers are going to use their job because of the advent of new technology? So would you agree that the narrative to that regard is somewhat wrong? It's more about augmenting the lawyers, helping them do their job better than replacing them. And if you do, what does that mean for the sales pitch? Because suddenly you cannot realize all these savings because you don't need the lawyers anymore. Absolutely. The message is definitely kind of like just augmenting lawyers. It's not a message of replacing and then it can't. And it's just more sort of just augmenting them. You can do more with less, that kind of thing using the tool. And, and that's what the main kind of message is. Because, you know, let's say if you're working in a large corporate law firm, you're doing a transaction and you, know, you have to read all those documents and find the liabilities and you're doing that till 3am. What happens when Ebrevia is introduced? Does it mean that you can now kind of go home at five or that something like that happens? Well, usually it just means that you might still be there at 3 3 a.m., but you can actually do five or six transactions now at the same time. So it's just kind of, uh, you know, you can do more with less, that kind of thing. And then it's the same with a lot of other sort of corporations as well. So it used to be the case, especially that I noticed when I was in-house as well, and this ties in with the sales pitch. You have, you know, different departments in a company. You've got the finance team, you've got the sales team, that kind of stuff. And, And what happens is they've got metrics. So if you're a sales team, for example, you've got a target and you've got to bring in a set amount and you 
you know, you can either show that you're meeting the target or you can show all the metrics like, you know, I've done this or done that, blah, blah, whatever it might be. For finance, it's other stuff. You know, it's going to be like, here are the liabilities. How many can we write down? How can we claim any tax relief? That kind of stuff. So it's really kind of the cold, hard data that makes its way to the board that lets the board get to their decisions. And for a long time, the legal team were historically immune to that kind of stuff. Because what would happen is, you know, if you're you're on the board of directors, you could say to your GC, you know, give me some metrics, show me how you're adding value to this company. And they could quite easily say, what do you want me to tell you? We're doing litigation for the company. It's on a really complex patent. What metrics do you want there? We can look at, you know, NDAs and that kind of stuff too, but it depends on the context. So it just depends on so many things. And, you know, there aren't really metrics that we can kind of give you. And that was the historic kind of position. And a lot of legal would be kind of immune from that. But now we're getting to a stage where legal is no longer immune at that sort of board level. They have to provide metrics as to what time are they saving? How have they added value to the company? That kind of thing. And that's why eBrevy can be super useful or just AI tools in general, because again, what tends to happen is if I'm doing, you know, I'm a legal counsel at a company and I'm, you know, negotiating a contract with a large vendor and then suddenly a request comes from the board, you know, I need to know how many indemnities we signed up to in the last 30 years. All of my work is going to be put on hold for a week as I go and trawl through that information. And then everyone's going to be angry because I haven't, you know, finished the stuff I'm supposed to do. With AI tools, I just go in, put all the stuff in, get the information out and then just pass it on and say, here's the stuff we've got. But I now have that information. I have saved 30 hours worth of work or something like that. And that can be taken across to the board. That can show how the tool is adding value or how the team are adding value to the corporation, that kind of thing. And that's how we kind of can then also add to the flavor of the pitch, depending on the context. You know, if they're a service provider, they can do more with less. It means that they increase the profit margin because a lot of companies don't want to pay by the hour anymore. They want to pay fixed fees on projects and they can do things more accurately. They don't just have to have 200 material contracts or something like that. They can see the whole shebang. And then the same, you know, for corporates and things like that too, it's it's more kind of like, yeah, you know, not only can you now just, because we know what it's like, you've got a small team and like the smallest or biggest request will just throw you guys off. Now it won't anymore. And then on top of that as well, you can get hardcore data metrics that you can take to the board and show how your team is adding value as well in this day and age. That's how it kind of frames the sales pitch. It just they can do more with less. It's not a replacement. It's just sort of augmenting them, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You talked about a shift in in-house departments and in the way that people do law for companies. This is a podcast that has generally Europe-centric focus, but we also want to take a look at all the markets. Looking at all of EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, and Africa, which markets are working best for you? And can you sort of explain different speeds of adoption if that is what you're seeing? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what markets are working best for us? And can we explain different speeds of adoption? Okay. So I think it depends. So we've got like, so in some of the ones where one might argue that the legal tech scene is a bit more active, so maybe London or Germany, things are pretty quick. So you can do a pitch and then you can win it pretty, pretty quickly. And that that's it. <laughs> it's kind of done. And that's fantastic. And, and people know the value. More importantly, they know the problem that they're facing as well. So they'll know that, you know, they're getting pressure from the board or that they need to make things more profitable when they're doing stuff for end clients, that kind of thing. So from that perspective, it can be really quick in terms of adoption. And sometimes, you know, there are different sort of things on the market as well. So sometimes people want to do a quick check and, and see, you know, how good is your thing really? And we facilitate that as well. They know all the processes. And so, so from that perspective, yeah, in some regions, it can be a bit quicker. And those are places like the UK or Germany or around other kind of regions too. And then you've got like kind of other ones where you start something off as a seed and then it just balloons really quickly, which is quite cool as well. So these can be places like Greece or Italy or things 
things like that, where you start to show a few people as to what this kind of stuff can do. They quite like it. They think it's quite, quite cool. They can see the value of it. And then suddenly, you know, one or two or three big names might just start using it. And then pow, it just balloons from there. So that's quite interesting too, because you can sometimes accelerate the adoption a little bit, which is in a region which, which you didn't really have before, which can be quite fun. And then you have kind of other sort of sort of areas too. So sometimes, so the Middle East, which again is lots and lots of different countries, all with different, you know, adoption cycles and stuff like that. So if you're, you know, pitching to clients in Dubai, predominantly the majority of the stuff is going to be in English anyway, uh, which, you know, just means that a lot of the tools can sometimes be there already or other things like that, or that, you know, it's quite kind of readily available to be used, that, that kind of things like that too, even though we work in other languages quite easily anyway too. So, so that can be quite interesting, but in other kind of regions as well. So in other kind of countries in the Middle East as well. So sometimes it'll be like Saudi Arabia or something like that, where what will happen is sometimes the end users might not actually know what they're looking for. Or if they do know what they're looking for, they're not too convinced as to what value the tool can actually bring. And they might not even want to try it out. They just sort of need to scope out what they need to do and have a look and see the kinds of things they're after and, and try and see what, what kinds of things they can, they can get from that. And in those instances, we even help from there as well. So we help with like you know, getting key facts and figures, putting together certain business cases, really listening to what they kind of need and you know, showing them the limitations, what it can do, what it can't do, showing similar kinds of adoption rates and stuff like that too when they're going to see some profit from it and, and stuff like that also. So from there, it, again, it, it kind of depends. So again, you've got like in Europe, the main kind of the places that are already quite established legal tech hub centers, there's lots of quick traction and the traction is very, very quick and fast moving. And in other sort of areas in Europe too, just when you start the ball rolling down the hill, it, it gets bigger and quicker quite nicely as well. And then in other kinds of areas, like in the Middle East, sometimes you, it's pretty easy because everybody's already in some regions too, such as Dubai. But then in others, it's more kind of what is this? Why would I use it? I need this actually, which is a bit different. How can it add value? And it's just kind of guiding people through baby steps as to see, you know, this is what you can do here. Here's how it's going to help there, that kind of thing. And, and we do that as well. But it can be a bit slower in places where that happens too. And, and that's fine. I see. I know that many members of audience are still in their education. They're still becoming lawyers. They're thinking about what skill set they might need. And I was thinking that if we leave the product discussions for a moment, it might be interesting to hear from you what you see in your day-to-day, -day, your job, what kinds of skills make people successful when they work at the intersection of law and technology? I think uh, that's actually a pretty interesting one. So I'm just making a quick note, intersection of law and technology, because I think there are two things that are quite interesting. So yeah, I think the first thing is, because there's lots of different types of roles that one can have uh, while working in uh, tech or in that kind of intersection. So when I was at law school, like tech was kind of like a big thing too. And we all thought to ourselves, oh my God, should we learn to code? Do we have to do that to survive? <laughs> that kind of thing, like what's the future going to hold? And I still can't code to this. Day. So if that's some kind of encouragement, I think the two things that are quite interesting is the first is like maybe on the sales side of things, it's really interesting because a lot of the skills are completely transferable. So I used to do a lot of criminal advocacy and, and what that involves is, you know, you have to persuade a jury or persuade a judge about your case, whether someone's guilty or innocent or whether they should get like a lighter sentence or whatever. And there are all kinds of idiosyncrasies that come with that. Yeah, there's the, you know, what is the law? What is your skeleton argument? That kind of thing too. But also, you know, how How are the jury reading things? How are they liking that? Are they not liking that? What do they not like about the defendant? 
or what do they like about the prosecution, that kind of thing. How are you going to handle that? How are you going to, you know, all the, the little things that you learn from there, as well as the day job that you wouldn't have thought would be, would be useful anywhere else, start to stack up when you switch into sales or something like that too. Because yeah, it's the same thing. You're just persuading somebody or persuading people that, you know, this is the, of the value the tool can bring them. And it's, you know, you notice the same little idiosyncrasies and things like that too. And I'll, I'll come on to that in just a moment as well. So, so that can be pretty interesting. And then from another side of things too, when I was like more in the commercial, corporate and financial services side of things, what used to happen is like either if it was like a large acquisition, so I would be advising on somebody's deal. So, you know, the company I'm working for is buying somebody for 180 million or it's selling some part of itself for 200 million, that kind of thing. So my job is to just try and make that transaction go as smooth as I can from a legal perspective. Or you're sort of doing a large commercial contract. You know, I worked for one of the brands we had was this tech company. They sold tech telematics. <laughs> so these little things you put in your car that give you data, like how fast is it going? Is anybody coming to bash it up? That kind of thing. And a lot of fleets used to buy that kind of stuff. So, you know, you might be working on the contract with Walmart, but Walmart for their whole big fleet, you're going to do the contract for that, for the telematics. And it was kind of cool in a way, those kinds of things. But like, there's a part of you or a part of me that was like, this is someone else's deal. I'm just advising on the side of it. I kind of want to make my own. And so from that perspective, that combined with like the sort of advocacy that you you do or the persuasion that you do as a lawyer fits really, really nicely into sales and stuff like that too, because, you know, it's all transferable and it, and it fits really, really well. And you'd be surprised at how, you know, the skills that you used before work, work here as well too. Then there's the product side of things. So, you know, a lot of people might be considering, you know, I want to go into the kind of the product side of things, you know, can I make a product? Can I develop it? You know, what would that be like? And I think another thing that happens there is just logic. And that's something that lawyers do really, really well, because you have to think quite logically, okay, there's an indemnity, fine. Is it a good indemnity? Is it a bad indemnity? Can I agree to it? Should I change it? What should I change? What are people likely to agree to? That kind of thing. So again, the logical side of things, what does the law say? And that can can help to make a really, really, really good product. I hate to kind of go a bit off topic here, but actually when you're kind of adopting a tool like eBrevio or any kind of tech, you get sort of different people who are among the users. You have advocates, so people who are really, really excited. They, they really want to see what it can do. It looks really cool. And then you have well poisoners, which is my favorite word. So these are people who might sort of be really adverse to it. They don't like it and they don't trust it and all this kind of stuff in between. Now, a little secret is when I was working in-house, we actually bought a piece of legal tech. It wasn't like anything artificial intelligence related, but it was like this kind of database where you put stuff in it. So you negotiate the contract. That's your job as the lawyer. And then once you've negotiated it, you go to the database and there are all these columns and you type in name, who are the parties, what are the dates, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Is there an indemnity? You type in the indemnity, you type in the risk, you type in the prices, blah, blah, blah. And somebody had to, on my team, was bought that. And then one of my jobs was to kind of roll that out. And I was the biggest well poisoner <laughs> for that piece of technology. Like I hated it so much. And it's really interesting to hear because like now I'm on the other side of it. But the advantages of doing that, like I used to make all these silly jokes like I'd make fun of its name. I'd say it was useless and, and blah, blah, blah. I was like a really horrible, terrible well poisoner. But if we think about that for a moment, the reason why I was doing that was because there are things about it that I didn't like. I didn't like the idea of spending all my time negotiating a contract, fighting over a really onerous indemnity, and then having a piece of 
tech that I had to sort of tell what the indemnity was or type it up again. I'm like, I have to do this work twice. Like first negotiate the contract, then tell the system about it. Like, you know, what a waste of time. Like, even though it was quite sarcastic, you know, there actually was some logic in there. And sometimes when you sort of think on those lines and a lot of the well poisoners, if we want to call them that, actually it comes from a really good place because then a software vendor can be like, yeah, no, you're right. Why should you do that twice? That's completely, it gives you double work. If only there was a way that we could just take that information out instead, which is of course something Librevia can do. So yeah, sometimes I think that that's a really great thing for a lot of people who are thinking about going into tech can sort of bear in mind too, especially on the project development side, like as they go through their careers, as they go through their education, what didn't they like? What would have been cool? And if you can figure that kind of stuff out and take it on to a product, it can become really, really, really successful. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that with us. I can see that our time is almost running out. So to close this out, and you already talked about this a little, the typical narrative would be that lawyers are slow to adopt technology and skeptical of change. So my question would be, what's it like to sell technology to lawyers in 2021? So are the advocates or are the well poisoners more powerful today? And are people maybe going from being skeptical of to being excited about technology? I think there's a stereotype that lawyers are quite sort of skeptical and slow to adopt and that kind of stuff. And I I think maybe that can be still true a little bit in some areas, but in others, it can be fading quite quickly. Um, So I think and both have their huge advantages. So like nowadays, what tends to happen is, you know, lawyers will, they'll know of the need. So they'll be like, okay, I'm getting pressure from the board. I need to show statistics or I need to make things more profitable. I need a piece of technology to do the high heavy lifting for us so we can do more projects. The challenge won't be sort of getting them to see the value of the technology, it'll be getting them to see that this is the absolute best one there is. And here's why. That can be pretty good. And the advantages of somebody who's like an advocate is, of course, they're going to come running if they think it's the best one. They're going to implement it. It's going to be really, really great. That's kind of good. But even from like the well poisoner perspective, that's super useful as well. So not just from a product angle. So yeah, they can tell you maybe what, what they don't like and maybe that can be changed and that can be hugely invaluable. Yeah, a lot of the times when someone is really adverse to it and they're not open to it, once they start to use it and actually find that it does help, like a lot of them turn into like your fiercest advocates for the product. And the best thing is, unlike the advocate, who sort of are just like, oh yeah, it can do anything and woo, let's go with it. These people are going to be more kind of, they're going to really talk about how just the benefits are really good in the really successful situations and tailor it there. So it's always kind of as successful from there too. So, so yeah, it is a bit of a changing viewpoint in the sense that a lot of lawyers are a lot less risk averse to this kind of stuff now. And those that don't like it, once they do try it, more often than not, they just turn into your strongest advocates, which will be really good fun as well. That's one positive outlook for the future and all that we have time for. Thank you for joining us, Abbas, and thank you all for listening.